Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber. I hope you enjoyed our interview last time around with Jim Courier. In this podcast, we have an interview with one of the greats in the history of the sport, one of the legendary Aussies whose career was interrupted by the split amateur professional circuits, which, of course, was only resolved in 1968 when tennis went open. We're talking about Ken Rosewall. I was starting to play junior events when I was seven and eight. At that time, I played in the 13 and under events, and uh, I started to win a few as I got a little bit older. I played in the 15 and under events, and I won those as well. The backhand seemed to be more of a natural shot to me, and I, I think when I was younger, I used to hit it flatter. You know, when I was 33 until I finished really playing top tennis at, at the age of 40 or 41, you know, I, I played some of my best tennis. Now, if you know just one thing about Ken Rosewall, it's probably to do with his backhand, which in his playing days was one of the most feared shots in the game. But did you know that he was actually ambidextrous and probably should have hit with a two-hander? Almost certainly would have done if he was growing up today. Tennis is a great sport for longevity, with several major champions living well into their 90s and one legend, Vixatious, living to 100. So Ken Rosewall was a mere youngster of 88 when he sat down in Melbourne and spoke with Chris Bowers. Ken Rosewall, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? <laughs> uh, well, I think longevity has helped my game and my reputation. But, uh, you know, when you start off being a tennis player at a young age, you never really know what's ahead of you. And... Uh, at 17 years of age, I had the opportunity of uh, travelling with the Australian amateur tennis team and my twin partner, Lewis Hode, was with me. So as a 17-year-old, uh, we we hit the international tennis circuit. So even at that stage, I didn't know what was ahead of me. So I think uh, with my reputation from winning some major events and uh, being successful in some of the Australian Davis Cup challenges and it's kind of put me in a situation where I was considered to be part of a, a Hall of Famer. I mean, a lot of people quote your name when they say the oldest player since Ken Rosewall because you <laughs> played so long. Do you think that's a big part of it? Well, well, yes. Uh, I, I never expected to be a player that had any kind of uh, performance to speak of, certainly after the game became open. In, you know, I was already 90, 33, so uh, I was old, I suppose, by tennis player's standards, but it, it gave me another tennis career because I lost 11 or 12 years as a, as a professional from the end of 1956 uh, when I joined the Jack Kramer group of professionals. And uh, so we, we hoped that we might have a chance to get back to playing international tennis and, and so on, but never expected it would take that long. But in any case... Uh, you know, when I was 33 until I finished really playing top tennis at, at the age of 40 or 41, you know, I, I played some of my best tennis. Take it back to your childhood. You started playing at the age of three because your dad, who was a grocer, he bought three clay courts. Is that right? <laughs> well, that's right. It's the last years of World War II. Uh, we lived at uh, a suburb called Rockdale in Sydney. And uh, I'm an only child, and both my mother and father played tennis and were interested. And, and, and I think really a adding to that, uh, there was a lot of the leading players in Australian tennis, both men and women, that came from tennis-playing parents. So that's why tennis in Australia was, was very strong and 
you know, we, we learnt what was right and wrong and, and so on. But because of his interest in tennis uh, and where we lived, there were courts available and at a moment, you know, he, he purchased these three tennis courts. So from a very young age, I was with him, you know, when we showed a bit of uh, work and maintenance on, on the courts to uh, because of the um, competition that was on and, and so on. So, yeah, good memories from him. Do you know whether the courts still exist now? Uh, yeah, they still do. Uh, you know, I, I don't live in Sydney now. I've moved up to the Gold Coast in southeast Queensland. But, uh, you know, nostalgic trips to, to Sydney to see some of my relations. Uh, you know, I go into the Illawarra Tennis Association courts. Uh, as the three old courts that my father had uh, are now part of the Illawarra Tennis Association and they they still are used. Probably not as much, though. We're not favourable, you know, the way uh, rules and regulations were for building tennis courts because they they ran east to west, and mostly tennis courts are built north to south, I guess because of the sun. But anyway, at the end of the war years, I think my father was fortunate enough to pass the courts on to a gentleman by the name of Arthur Chapman who was really well known in the district of Illawarra, the Tennis Association, and did a lot for tennis. There were four other courts that Mr Chapman owned that that really ran into these three courts that my father owned, so he had the seven courts. But but with uh, development in in recent years, uh, a lot of tennis courts have been gobbled up for the value of real estate, and uh, those four courts that Mr Chapman had at Rockdale were taken, taken up for, uh, for home apartments. And the ones that you learned to play on, were they clay as in the European or North American sense or were they the Australian and hill? Uh, no, they were more, more or less clay courts. Uh, I think there were more ant-bed type courts in Queensland and, and in the country areas of New South Wales. But in the city, we had uh, just typical clay courts, which were, were a fair, fair bit of maintenance. Uh, and over a period of time, I think... Uh, with the new uh, surfaces coming into into popularity, um, you know the old clay courts uh, w- were just too much work, too much you know watering and sanding and sweeping and watering and things like that. So, as a three-year-old, could you hold a racket? <laughs> well, I don't remember too much about that, but I, I would say that. Uh, at that age, I was too young to hold a racket one hand, and and my my father probably not when I was three, but when I was a little bit older, he said, well, you better not think of playing two hands uh, because it's not not a real popular shot, the two-handed shot in those days. So you better be right-handed player or left-handed player. And, but you were left-handed, weren't you? Well, left, left-arm throwing motion uh, and two-handed sports, I play left-hand, so I'm a bit ambidextrous. Uh, my father was left-handed two-handed sports too, uh, but he played tennis right hand and uh, kicked the football right foot, and as I did. But uh, if you were to throw something at me, I'd probably stick my left arm and left hand out in front to, to try to catch it. So, did he teach you? Did he force you to be a right a right hander, or was that your choice? Oh no, I think it was more, my choice. Uh, uh, he said, "Well, look, you better decide left hand or right hand," and because I I preferred the right hand shot on the backhand side, swinging the right arm away from the body, I became a right-handed player. So now that the horse has bolted, I, I probably wish I'd served left hand because I would have had a more natural service motion. 
What about a two-handed backhand? Because, I mean, although two-handed backhands only came in in large numbers in the 70s and 80s, Vivian McGrath did very well in the 1930s with a two-hander. Uh, that's true, and not a lot of people recognise that Australia were the first uh, country to develop two-handed shots. <laughs> and Vivian McGrath was a perfect example of a, of a great two-handed backhand shot. He was an outstanding player as a young person, and of course World War Two, you know, destroyed his uh, career. When did you first get the sense that you were good? Uh, well, I, I was starting to play junior events when I was seven and eight, uh, and at that time I played in the 13 and under events, and... Uh, I started to win a few, and as, as I got a little bit older, I played in the 15 and under events, and I won those as well. So, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, if I continue uh, to improve, uh, you know, I never know what was ahead of me. And my, my father was always kind of a bit uh, protective of, of my career and what people might say about my, my performance or why I played, and didn't want me to think that I was going to be too good uh, too soon. But he still encouraged me to play a lot, a lot of tennis and to learn what I could while I was practising or watching other players. Parents of gifted children can never get it totally right. But <laughs> do you think you got the balance right between encouraging you and not letting you get too ahead of yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he, you know, like he, uh, he learned his tennis from reading old tennis books. And uh, so he could only take me so far, which he first, you know, admitted to. Uh, because he wasn't didn't have the knowledge, you know, for the rest of the game, the way tennis was played in those days. Because, you know, Australia had a lot of leading players, but uh, quite a few were ambidextrous. And our Davis Cup players and person that I idolised were John Bromwich, who, who nearly won Wimbledon in 1948. He was a right-handed server, left-hand forehand, two-handed two -handed backhand, and Jeff Brown was the same thing. Uh, so we, we kind of led the way with ambidextrous-type players. But, you know, I, I think I, I would have learnt a lot more if I'd been encouraged to, with, with somebody with professional advice and professional ex expertise to, uh, uh, you know, tell me other things about serving better or having better technique or things like that. So you're seven or eight years old and you're beating these 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Why? What were you doing differently to them? Uh, well, I think my game was built on consistency and uh, control. So I think uh, it was just because I, I kept the ball in play and I moved fairly quickly for for a smaller person. Like, you know, my footwork was pretty good, and uh, that's what my father kind of always talked about: having good footwork and good good movement around the court. So I think uh, when I played boys that were a little bit older than I was, I was you know, I, I really kind of wore them down with my consistency in, on the court. How much was having learnt on clay a factor in that? Because most tennis in those days was played on grass, which is a very different surface to the stuff you grew up on. Uh, well, that's right. But I think the clay courts were a good grounding for, for learning on any type of surface or playing on any kind of surface uh, because it helped you with your, your footwork and if you had to slide, you know, because sometimes the clay courts were were quite slippery. You know, I, uh, knowing that if I became much better that I would have to play more on the grass courts, uh, I kind of uh, had that experience at the at the schoolboys and schoolgirls events that they had yearly at the White City Tennis Courts in Sydney. You know, I, I, I think I enjoyed playing on grass. I mean, the grass courts were very good and you know, I could still win my match at that age 
from playing from the back of the court. I liked to volley, and when I was home, I practiced my volley most times against the wall. So I, as my game progressed, I became a good volleyer. And were you always fairly short? Were you, in your class, one of the smaller guys? I mean, you ended up as 5'7", 1m70"? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I was always one of the smaller players. I mean, my mother and father were not big people. Uh, a bit different from today when you see the, the giants of players from the men and the women are pretty good size too and very powerful. But for me in those early days, I don't think the height made too, too much of a difference. And... Uh, you know, I, I had quite good experience playing with my father in mixed competition Saturdays and Sundays, playing against other adults. So my incentive of playing bigger people was, was there and it didn't seem to worry me too much. So it was something that I had to put up with for the rest of my career because I was always the smaller player. You see, listening to this background, you're ambidextrous, you hit with both hands but then are forced to be a right-hander or chose to be a right-hander. You're one of the smaller guys and you're playing on clay when most people were playing on grass. I mean, it's astonishing that you were as good as you were, isn't it? Uh, Well, as I said, um, you know, I started playing the grass court tournaments, um, you know, like when I was 13. I mean, I think at that stage... I was still able to win the matches playing on grass from the back of the court. I probably learned to play more of an all-court game as I got got a little bit bigger and a little bit older and a little bit more experienced. But, uh, I mean, it was something that you had to adapt to. I mean, once once you moved off the clay courts, I mean, the important events were played on grass. The, the, the events for uh, recognition were, were played on grass. And if you won grass court tournaments, well, you kind of recognise a little bit more readily. Did you have any setbacks in your junior days? I mean, you're painting a picture of it sort of as a fairly steady stream. You're beating the 12-year-olds at the age of seven and eight. Were there any points where you seemed to hit a wall? I think uh, when I was smaller, I suffered a little bit with allergies and uh, had some skin skin problems so from time to time you know that that was pretty upsetting and certainly upsetting for my my parents uh and a a few times when I was suffering with this these problems you know I was trying to play and uh not playing that well not feeling too good so that that kind of was upsetting for me but generally speaking I was very lucky through my whole career although I've had had this skin problem pretty much as a lifetime, and uh, to some degree the allergies as well. I've put up with it, and uh, you know, my, my career kind of progressed just the same. You know, So I, I was really happy with it, and from a point of view of injuries, you know, I, I played all that time on any kind of surface you can think of, and even in my years as a professional, in 12, 12 years when I missed the amateur circuit or because of me turning professional, you know, we played on all kinds of surfaces. With the old uh, Dunlop Volley tennis shoe, I, I didn't, uh, didn't have any problem. When did you first get to know Lou Hode? Because even at the age of 12, you were playing exhibition matches before Davis Cup ties, weren't you? Oh, Lou and I first met when... Uh, Jack Kramer and Ted Schroeder with the other American players came to Australia for the 1946 Davis Cup final. 
because Australia had won the Davis Cup against America in 1939 when World War Two broke out, and so we had the Davis Cup trophy in Australia for all, all of those years. So Jack and Ted Schroeder, they played some exhibition matches after they won the Davis Cup at the end of 1946. One was at the Illawarra Tennis Association courts where I learned my tennis, and Lou and I were asked to play the opening little match. We were 11 years of age at that stage. So that was the first time Lou and I had met and the first time that Lou and I had played against each other. Quite an experience, and that was the start of a good relationship and good doubles pairing <laughs> over the years. I mean, you were thought of as the, the twins, weren't you? Because you were very much the same age and your careers followed each other. You were sort of one and two in the world during your amateur years. Uh, well, pretty much so, yes. Yeah, I'm just three weeks older than Lou. Lou, unfortunately, had passed on much too early. But, uh, yeah, we, we travelled and played with and against each other quite a bit. So we, we had some good times together and uh, and we travelled together, you know, with Harry Hopman in the Davis Cup team overseas that, that one year when we won the Cup back from America in 1955. And then I I went into professional ranks and Lou, Lou came in with Jack Kramer's group, you know, just a few months later. What did you learn from Harry Hopman? Because he was a strict taskmaster and because of the nature of amateur and professional circuits, he generally had the young men before they turned professional. What was it like and what did you pick up from him? Well, you know, Harry was a very good uh, operator (laughs) and I think it was good to be with him because he was a father image to a lot of the younger players. Lou and I were only 17 when we first came in contact as, as a team, but we knew Mr Hopman before that, and he, he knew of our ability, and so he might have helped us be part of the Australian team as 17-year-olds, which was a bit unusual. But you know, on the other hand, uh, I mean, Roy Emerson and Ashley Cooper travelled early at a young age, and Neil Fraser as well. But, uh, you know, Harry wanted to make sure that everybody behaved themselves well, you know, as I say, a good father image. So we learned a lot from him as far as behaviour and uh, both on and off the court and, you know, table manners. <laughs> uh, you taught table manners as part of uh, being a good tennis player. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I think it helps. Uh, it, it kind of uh, comes from really the parents to begin with. And I think uh, being an only child, is sometimes you might get a bit spoilt over different things. But... Uh, yeah, my father and mother, you know, started me off on the right track. And certainly as far as tennis on and off the court, you know, they, they were kind of fairly uh, strict in reference to behaviour and so on. And, and Harry was the same, you know, so that, w- that was good. Uh, I felt that Harry was, was really an advantage to Australian tennis. Uh, he didn't, didn't help me as much from a technical point of view, but, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't his expertise. Uh, he was a very good player himself in the early days. You know, I, I didn't have any professional advice over advice from my father and and he could only, as he admitted, could only take me so far. So I would have appreciated uh, having a little bit more expertise in, in reference to uh, advancing my particular uh, weakness. So did you have a coat as such? No, uh, I mean, Lou and I were, were just on 
developed on natural talent. You know, I mean, Lou had a lot of natural talent, and uh, he was helped by Adrian Quist, who was part of the Dunlop organisation. So, and Lou was played with the Dunlop racket, and uh, I was with the Slazenham group. But uh, no, no particular professional advice. You know, time to time, maybe one-off occasions. Your first two major titles came in 1953, the Australian Open when you were 18 and a few months later at Roland Garros. <laughs> two very different surfaces. What do you think you had at that age that allowed you to beat the best amateurs in the world? Yeah, it's a, a good question. Uh, um, I don't know. I think I was pretty excited about being a winner at the Australian title. That, that kind of came as a surprise to me and to everybody else. And uh, my story on that is the fact that Frank Seisman and Ken McGregor, after the Davis Cup of 1952 uh, in Adelaide, they went into professional ranks with Jack Kramer. So it, it weakened the the field at the Australian Open, which was played at Keong in Melbourne. And uh, I thought both Lou and I were were playing reasonable because we we'd done a lot of practice with Seisman and McGregor as members of the Davis Cup squad. So we were just hopeful we'd play well in the Australian title. I, I just don't remember who Lou lost to, but I, I, I know I beat an American player, my name was Straight Clark, and then I beat Vexatious in the semi-final, and uh, I played our Australian player, Mervyn Rose, in the final. So I surprised everybody, <laughs> as well as myself. Uh, so I was very proud of, of winning the title. And winning the French title, I mean, was it almost more natural for you to win Roland Garros, given that you'd grown up on clay? Yeah, well, well, I enjoyed playing on clay. Um, I'd played the French title the year before, and I lost to Fausto Gardini, who was a top Italian player, 6-2 in the fifth set. It was a really good experience, and we had some other tournaments around Europe before and after Wimbledon, before we went to play in America on, on the grass courts, as it was then. But the clay courts I always enjoyed playing on. So, you know, I mean, I only played in the French title five times and I won it twice and lost in the final one other time to Rod Laver. The two Wimbledon finals you played, 54 against Yaroslav Drobny, you lost that one, mm. and 56 against Lou Hode. Mm. What do you remember about playing Drobny? Because mm. he, he was the kind of emotional, sentimental favourite right. that you became later. <laughs> yeah, that's perfectly true. Uh, yeah, well, I'd seen Drob play when he came to Australia and uh, I knew he was a good player and I'd, I'd seen his match with Frank Sedgman in the final of 1952 at Wimbledon. But uh, the, the only thing I was disappointed with is that, that, that Harry didn't give me some special advice when I played Drob because by that time, you know, at 19, I was beginning to be more conscious that I needed to go to the net a little bit more on the, on the volley because I had a good volley and rely on my ground shots to, to play to Dobney's weakness, which was his backhand, you know, left-handed backhand. And, and I saw that in, uh, you know, some of his other matches, but I wasn't really encouraged as much as I would, was hoped. Oh, I suppose you know being in the final for the first time was a bit nerve nerve wracking, and Drob was more experienced, being eleven years older than I am, so it was it was quite something. But uh, you know, after uh, what he'd been through in his tennis career and political uh, situation, you know, it was good to see him win. Did you feel that at the time? I mean, it's hard 
for people to say that these days. Yeah. I remember there's the footage of you tossing your racket up as, as you ran to the net to yeah. shake hands with him. Yeah. Were you? Was it just a different culture about losing with dignity, or were you genuinely happy for him? Oh well, I suppose uh, when you put it that way, I, I was uh, losing with dignity. You know, win or lose, you got to you know behave properly. You know, I, was, I suppose deep down I was happy that he won, but uh, and, and won the title because he was coming to the end of his career and and so on. So I had, had uh, encouragement because I did well. Unfortunately, um, my Wimbledon career was a little bit topsy-turvy with uh, some some good wins and some good losses. <laughs> Tell me about your backhand, because for a, most of your career, people raved about the Rose Wall backhand, <laughs> and yet it's not a conventional shot, is it? It's it's neither a topspin nor a yeah, slice. Yeah. How did that evolve, and, and when did you become aware it was good? Well, I think I did things better on my left side. I, I always seemed to have good footwork and good eyesight on, on my left side, but much better than on the on my right side, on the forehand side. So the backhand seemed to be more of a natural shot to me. And I, I think when I was younger, I used to hit it flatter. So that was easy for me. And uh, as I got older, well, I bit, got a bit more conservative, but I could certainly, uh, you know, hit it flat when the time came in the right time of the match for, for trying for a passing shot or whatever. But I had good control over the backhand most times. And, uh, you know, with the predominantly natural grips uh, in that day and age of tennis, uh, I didn't have too much of a change between the forehand and the backhand group grip or the serve. So uh, it all, all came pretty natural to me. It's a bit different from watching some of the leading players of today. That's so different with a higher bouncing ball and the, the really exaggerated grips on the forehand. Have you ever tried to teach your backhand to anybody? <laughs> Not really. Um, you know, some people will ask me. Uh, I think people at social play and maybe beginning players in, in the tournament circuit, they might say, well, what do you think I should do on my backhand? And I think... I might do it, might not do it, but I think that a lot of people, from a technical point of view, made their back, backhand more difficult because they had too high a backlift on their backswing. So I always said to people, try to keep the the arm closer to the hip on the backswing, which then allows the racket and arm to flow through the ball rather than chop down on it. So that was the halfway house between the slice and a topspin? Uh, yeah, more or less. I didn't have any exaggerated topspin. You know, it was, you know, Lou had uh, a lot of physical strength plus the natural ability. So he uh, had a lot of different shots in his repertoire, and and he could play the topspin as well. As well, the topspin became more favourable because also Rod Laver, who came later, you know, he played more with a topspin on the forehand, but as well as on the backhand, but. But Rod had a, had a good slice backhand as well. Let's go back to 1956, your last year as an amateur. You'd been approached by Jack Kramer, who was the leading promoter of the professional circuit at the end of 55, and you'd said no to him. Was that because you wanted to give yourself another shot at winning Wimbledon and another US Open, another US <laughs> Nationals title? Oh, well, I suppose so, but you really didn't know what was ahead of you. I, you know, I, I felt that... Uh, after we won the Davis Cup back in '55, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, give it another another shot at, at, at trying to win Wimbledon and and so on. 
But, uh, you know, my father and mother were hard-working parents and we didn't have much, you know, financial backing. I, I was employed by Slaznius, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money. And then I, I had a job uh, basically because of Mr Blacklock, who was the managing director of Slaznius and a friend of, of uh, people who ran the Carnation Milk Company. So I had, a, you know, a small influence and a small job with them for that, for that year. So that, that kind of kept us going. But, you know, my intention was to turn pro if, if I was good enough and could get a, an offer from Mr Kramer. Well, you clearly were good enough, and you got an offer from Jack Kramer. Was it very sad to have to leave the prestigious tournaments, or was it a no-brainer, given the economics of your life? Yeah, I, I think it was more or less a no-brainer, plus the fact that, uh, uh, you know, I'd just been married in October, uh, so my wife and I were, uh, I mean, fortunately she enjoyed tennis, she she got, probably got sick of watching me play, but uh, she did travel a lot with me in the early years, uh, that first year when I was a professional. But I didn't think I'd have much choice about turning professional because Mr Kramer was keen for me to come in with a group and uh, I didn't really recognise what I was in for, playing 80 matches or so against Pancho Gonzalez. It was quite some terrorising moments for me, uh, playing him on his favourite surface indoors and on canvas uh, that was pretty fast kind of game, which was right up his alley. He was one of the top players. How did you deal with that? Well, with a fair bit of difficulty because, you know, I didn't have the power that Gonzalez had. He's a six-foot-three person and, uh, you know, he had just a marvellous reaction on his his service action. He was just a top competitor. He'd get a little cranky from time to time and uh, pick a bit, bit of an argument with lines people or umpires or somebody in the grandstand or something, but usually he played pretty well. And uh, my first year, I, I lost uh, 51 matches to 26, I think. He was a top player, and he, even when he was over the 40-year bracket, he still plays some top tennis. I'm not sure how much we should read into the 11 and a half years you played on the professional circuit because it was this group of players who went from city to city playing sort of pretty much the same opponents each night. But in 1963, you played Rod Laver 13 times. He'd done the Grand Slam in the amateur world the Mm. previous year Mm. and you won 11 out of those 13. Okay, (laughs) I don't know what it was, but uh, I I know Luke... Had a, had a very good record with Rod to begin with, too. Rod always looked up to Lou as his idol, so that made it probably more difficult for him. But we had our first lot of matches in Australia, and uh, that was when when Rod had moved in in early 63. So he was definitely very helpful in ref- reference to keeping the pro game going because uh, we needed somebody else to come in and really be the top player. But was there a resentment among the pro players that you were clearly a level above the amateurs, but they were getting all the attention because they were playing all the traditional tournaments like Wimbledon and the US and Australian Championships? Um, there wasn't anything that worried us too much, I don't think. We, we, had an in, we always had a hopeful intention that there would be some move towards open tennis and letting the pros play again which nearly came in in 1960. 
for various reasons, it didn't. Uh, but it was any, a very close vote, yeah, so it, was, <laughs> it, it could have come in when you were, what, 26? Yeah, so it would have made a big difference to, to all of us, yeah. But, you know, for all of us fellows that came into the professional ranks uh, and some of the guys that did come in were, were doing okay from an amateur point of view in the, uh, the so-called under-the-table payments, and it really happened because of the All England Club at Wimbledon and Herman David, who was the then chairman, uh, decided that they wanted to have a, an open event at, at the All England Club. So I think they got support from the English Tennis Association and the French and finally America and Australia. Yeah, we, we were happy when, the, um, when it came in, but uh, we thought that our, our game was strong, so everybody was in it for, you know, uh, for the best players to make the most money. And you were the champion in the first Open tournament in Bournemouth in <laughs> April 1968 and the first Open major at Roland Garros uh, two months later. What was the atmosphere like and what, what does it mean to you to have been the champion of those two tournaments? <laughs> well, it was, it was very encouraging for our group. I mean, uh, the professional circuit was mixed up together with different different uh, groups. The WCT was was beginning to get formed and start, and and then there was a national tennis league that, that we were part of. But uh, certainly playing at Bournemouth was was an incentive for all of us to do quite well, and there was a few surprises there uh, because it was very slippery clay courts, which. Once again, I enjoyed playing on. So, having won the tournament, you know, not, which didn't have that much money, I don't suppose. <laughs> uh, and then a month or so later, to play in the French, you know, was really encouraging to be able to go back there and play as well as I did. And you were into your thirties by the time tennis went open, so you mm. missed eleven and a half years from your early twenties to your early thirties, mm. which is tough. Do you ever feel resentful about that? Oh, not really. I mean, uh, you know, I. I made my bed, I had, so I had to lie in it. And, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, as a, as a professional, I was going to make my life a little bit more financial secure. And, uh, you know, that's what I hoped would happen. And I, I didn't think I'd play quite as long as I did. My career was extended because of the open tennis. And uh, from from that year on, uh, 1968 till, till probably 1976, you know, I played some of my best tennis. What made you play such good tennis at that stage? Because age was against you, the game was getting more powerful, height was against you. Well, I think it was before all these big changes came into the game. I mean, it was, from my memory, uh, it was late 70s when the bigger rackets started to make an impact. And I think myself, uh, from the game's point of view, that, that the ITF didn't regulate the size of the head of the racket. You know, and I think that that should have been done to keep it at the, the same size, uh, but let the the companies do their product development, whether they d- develop a graphite racket, wooden racket, metal racket, steel racket, aluminium racket or whatever, but keep the head of the racket the same size. That would have eliminated these dramatic changes from a technique point of view, even with, uh, well, this day and age, you know, with so much more power and, and strength and, and opportunity for the boys and the girls to work both on and off the court in the gymnasium to, to build up that strength and open up the game. You know, I, I, I think really tennis made a big impact uh, when it, 
went back in the Olympics because there was much more Olympic funding for the the so-called world third third world countries. And uh, as we see now, I mean, it's a long time since, but we see so many top players coming from almost every country in the world. So are you saying that if you'd been born 20 years later, you might have struggled because there would have been bigger technology that might have offset the skills that you used? Oh, oh definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean, my my game uh, with my grips and my technique, you know, wouldn't have stood, and my size, uh, it's, it's so much better. I mean, like, for example, I mean, the football rule. The football rule where, where everybody at my age or, or, or more learned where we had to have one foot on the ground and we were not allowed to swing the other foot over the line. So the football rule was very difficult, and I think the International Tennis Federation said, well, OK, let's, we'll, we'll wipe all that. So the only way you can football is if you step on the line. So it allowed everybody to jump. So we see now ladies and men that are, that are well over six feet and they jump another 12 inches off the ground when they serve, and they have great leverage on, on first serves and second serves. Because the serve was always... a. Uh... It was a big part of your game, but it wasn't a powerful part. It was the way you placed it and the way you spun it. Well, that was the idea. I mean, I I had to work for all of my points, just about. It's only on the fast grass courts, you know, where my serve kind of carried low a lot of times, and that's the way the game was played, And you know, because the grass court ball bounce was lower. I think I always played well on the Forest Hills grass courts because... You got some good bounces uh, and soft bounces <laughs> on the soft turf there, so that helped my game quite a bit. So I, I enjoyed playing the US Open at Forest Hills. Let's pick a couple of matches. The Wimbledon final of 1970, where you came back from two sets to one down, had a fantastic fourth set against John Newcomb, mm. but then lost it in five. Yeah. I mean, you were the sentimental favourite that Drobny had been <laughs> um, 16 years earlier. Well, that's right. I, you know, I'd, I'd played with and against John for many, many years because uh, we were both with the Slashier Corporation in Sydney and uh, I, I was asked many times to practice with this young junior player. So, yeah, John was very uh, conscious of, of his game and, uh, and his knowledge on whoever he had to play or whoever he played with. So, yeah, it was just unfortunate. Uh, he was a very good competitor as his reputation has, has has said, and uh, when we played in the final, well, uh, you know, on that particular day, it was just a bit too good. In Dallas in 1972, you had the most amazing match against Lever, and you beat him. Now, again, perhaps winning in your late 30s has become fashionable again with Federer and Nadal <laughs> Djokovic. That's it. But at that time, it was it was a major statement, wasn't it? Uh, well, it was. Uh, you know, well, the WCT circuit was turned out to be pretty good for, for me. I mean, it started in 1971, and uh, the top eight players, depending on your qualification uh, or the points at the end of the 20-tournament circuit, the eight players played off in the finals. So, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I my game kind of came to a peak at that time. So Rod and I had played in the final then. And in the next year, the, the circuit was reduced to 10 events. And uh, once again, the eight, pretty much the same eight players qualified. You know, I, I had a good win. I think I beat Bob Lutz and Arthur Ashe 
in the quarter final and the semi final, and Rod and I played in the final. So, uh, oh, something something to remember, yeah. Because uh, you know that particular match uh, for me, I I thought I I played much better than Rod all all through the match, you know, and his game was a bit up and down. He had his moments when he when he kind of came back from from looking like defeat in the fourth set, which I should have won, I think. But anyway, the fifth set was close and it was only a flip of the coin as to who won. And perhaps the most sentimental part of your career were the two runs, uh, one to the Wimbledon final and one to the US Open final in 1974. You were 39 years old, you were 40 in November, just after the US Open. OK, you were beaten by Connors, who was the brash young thing <laughs> and beating everybody, but... That must have given you incredible satisfaction. What what was it that allowed you to defy the years? Yeah, I, I don't know. I find it difficult to answer. I, uh, 74 was a, a strange year because that was the introduction of Teams Tennis in America. For some reason or another, I signed up with uh, the team in Pittsburgh and, and my family came over with me and my, our two boys went to school in Pittsburgh during the, the northern summer. And the Teams Tennis circuit was stopped halfway through so you could play it those three to four weeks in, in England, including Wimbledon. So nobody really knew how they would play because the team's tennis format was just short sets, you know, and we we just didn't know. But, uh, you know, I, I went to Wimbledon with my family and uh, I was very relaxed with the whole thing and I was in good shape because I'd played a fair bit of tennis. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I, I did fairly well. U.S. Open was a different matter. I mean, Jimmy Connors was was a very good competitor and and very strong. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't didn't play anywhere near as well as I would like. To, but I did I did play Jimmy in quite a few finals of the other events, and I, I didn't do well against him as well as I would have liked because most times I was usually physically exhausted by the time I got to the final, <laughs> and uh, he was far too good. And that uh, final at Forest Hills in 74 was the last one on grass at the US Open. It certainly was, yeah. I, I played there once more when the uh, the courts were, were hard true or, or like clay courts. Uh, I think I lost to Higueras, who was a specialist on the clay courts. That was in 76, I think. Yeah. We've talked only about singles, but doubles is a very big part of your life. Career Grand Slam. Do you think of tennis in your era as very much singles and doubles, the way that they don't tend to think of it as the same discipline now? Oh, I think when the when the players started playing the circuit, I mean, you're, you're always sort of playing doubles as well. I don't know. I suppose the money side of it came into it because, you know, there wasn't the extraordinary prize money in men's singles and there wasn't extraordinary prize money in ladies' singles either. <laughs> You know, doubles. I I enjoyed that to a degree, but singles was what most most of the leading men wanted to do better in the in the singles and the doubles. But but I played with Lou Hode quite a bit to begin with, and then Davis Cup match. Uh, Lou Lou and Rex Hartwig played and formed a good pair. I played with Neil Fraser. We beat Sacious and Traver at Wimbledon that that one year when we lost to Hartwig and Hode in the Wimbledon final. When was that? 1955. And then in the professionals, well, I played quite a bit with Fred Stolley, but I had to play on the forehand court because Fred wanted to play on the backhand court. 
And then I also played a lot with Pancho Gonzalez. So, yeah, so uh, it was it was good. Dennis Rolson was another another one. He 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 always he he always did better in doubles, and I enjoyed playing doubles with him. Too. But Lou Hoad was your. If you had to play one doubles match with any partner, alive or dead, you'd go for Hoad, would you? Oh, yeah, I think uh, Lou on his day was one of the best players. The way the game was played and the technique of play, I mean, Lou, Lou had everything with the game. He had a lot of touch, you know, he had a lot of feel, had a lot of power. And when he really set his mind to it, he can play exceptionally well. In 1980, you were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. What do you remember about that, and what did it mean to you? Well, being in Newport, Rhode Island, does take me back a long way because Lou and I were first in the Australian team at 17, and that's when we first played there. And the Newport, Rhode Island was one of the main tournaments on the American summer circuit before the US doubles in Boston at, at Longwood Cricket Club. So uh, my experience at Newport, Rhode Island was something to, <laughs> to remember because uh, even in the in the earlier pro days, uh, we, we played a lot there with Mr. Van Allen, who was basically responsible for the, uh, the tiebreaker system in tennis. He said, well, yeah, you pros can come and play here in August and, and I'll give you $10,000 for, for prize money and maybe 2500 for tournament expenses but as long as you play to my rules. So we, we played there several times, and one time it was serving from three feet behind the baseline. The next time it was table tennis rules. And one other time was what they called, what he called a three-bounce rule. So in other words, if I was serving, I had to wait for the ball to bounce once on my side of the court before I could go to the net. You couldn't serve and volley. And the same if you were returning, you couldn't, come to the net after return you have to wait for the ball to come and bounce on your side of the court so we had we had quite an experience of of different types of tennis there to encourage you know more rallies i think because there was an indication that uh, the serve and volley game was too short you know there were too many quick rallies so that was james van allen seriously experimenting rather than just having a bit of fun mm-hmm yeah, well, Mr. Van Allen, uh, he was concentrating on on the tiebreaker. He wanted the the nine point tiebreaker, you know, which was used at the U.S. Open in 1970, mm-hmm. and for the first few years. Yeah. Well, now that you've mentioned it, I I liked it because I won the tournament in 1970. So, <laughs> I, I played Tony Roach in the final, and we had our third set was a tiebreaker, which I think I won at five five points to three, or something like that. Anyway, but. Uh, uh, I think the uh, tennis authorities they said, well, let's change the tiebreaker, and uh, Mr. Van Allen would maybe not like it, but we're going to have a two-point advantage. So it's first to seven with the two-point advantage. And when you say you play table tennis rules, I mean, is that like doubles where each player has to be altern- alternately hitting the ball? Uh, no, no, it was, it was just that like we had five points, and then just, uh, the others team would have five points to serve okay yeah we played that a few times was there any scoring system that you'd like to have had <laughs> tennis pick up that just never took off no i, I don't think so uh you know the, i think the other rules that have been introduced or relaxed from the early days have, have, have made the tennis a little bit easier for the players and as i mentioned earlier the the serving has made a, a big, big impact because I don't think anybody recognised that that players would get so powerful and so strong 
and help with the equipment and the, the technology of the uh, synthetic strings help the serve get more powerful. Having played until your mid-40s, you were obviously late into your tennis retirement, but you've had 40-plus years to look back on tennis. <laughs> what do you say to people who ask you for advice, whether it's young kids or whether it's, say, parents no. of promising kids? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, not the, in that situation. It hasn't been approached to me too much. Uh, you know, I mean, occasionally I've talked to some young juniors, but, uh, you know, I don't get asked a, a particular technical question too much, uh, basically because I'm, I'm from the old school, which tennis was played in the old school way with the, you know, the old traditional grips. Whereas I, I don't know much about the game these days except to recognise the ability of all the players, they're, they're, how the technique has allowed them to be more baseline players, matches have been longer, rallies have been longer. That's the way tennis is, but, you know, to some degree, I mean, I don't, don't agree with it, but uh, that's the way the game has gone. Ken Rosewall, thank you very much indeed for sharing your yeah. thoughts on your career in tennis. Yeah, all right. Thank you very much. Thanks. The incomparable Ken Rosewall. And I certainly hope I sound that lucid when I get to 88. The grips may have changed, but Ken Rosewall is still a member of a very special club of tennis champions, that great Australian post-war generation that included Frank Sedgman and Ken McGregor and Lou Hode and Neil Frazier and Rod Laver and Roy Emerson and John Newcomb and Tony Roach and on down the line. And we have a modern Australian legend next time around, the intensely likable Patrick Rafter. Listen to his endearing honesty on the next edition of the Tennis Worthy Podcast. And if you're enjoying these interviews with legends, please do tell your friends and family about them. Help us spread the word. The Tennis Worthy Podcast is brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haber. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.